Adam Schefter podcast. As the conversation about social justice continues throughout our country, we are joined by two men who have been and are in the thick of it. CNN reporter Omar Jimenez, the man who was detained by Minneapolis police on live television on the morning of Friday, May 29th, joins us to talk about his experience in Minneapolis as well as his love of the Atlanta Falcons and how they broke his heart in their Super Bowl loss to the New England Patriots. And we'll stick in Minnesota and we'll be joined by the Vikings co-defensive coordinator Andre Patterson, a man who has spent the last 38 years coaching in 18 different cities and establishing three years ago a social justice committee in Minnesota with the Vikings that has done tremendous work in that community. And Andre Patterson, a deep thinker, a great man, joins us to talk about his experiences with his committee and his life in football. And before we get to those men and the events in the world, there are the football events in Dallas going on right now. And as we record this podcast on Monday morning, Dak Prescott is signing his $31.4 million exclusive franchise tender. Let's break down what this means and where this is going with Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys. The fact that he is signing his franchise tender today does not mean that he and the Dallas Cowboys are any closer to a deal today than they've been all along. And these talks have been going on for an awfully long period of time. What it does mean is that Dak Prescott is now contractually obligated to report to training camp and can't skip out like any former franchise player did, like a Le'Veon Bell. He's under contract. And in my mind, he's got the situation where he's got the leverage. If you look at Dak Prescott, he will be paid $31.4 million this year on that exclusive franchise tender. If he and the Dallas Cowboys do not get a long-term deal done, by the July 15th deadline, and I think it's going to be tough to do, being that neither side has been willing to give in so far. That means he'll play this year for $31.4 million, can't sign a long-term deal all year long by the rules of the franchise tag, and the two sides could then next talk about a contract extension after this season, which means they could be right back to where they were. And if they are, and Dallas has to franchise Dak Prescott again, the franchise next, the franchise number next year would be $37.7 million going up. And if they had to franchise him again the year after, and we're really getting ahead of ourselves, it would be 144% of that year's number, which is $54.4 million. The bottom line here is that Dak Prescott is due over the next two years in franchise tag money about $70 million, close to $70 million. So any deal that doesn't contain that amount of money, is going to be tough for the two sides to pull off. And Dak Prescott has got the leverage because we also are going to see at some point in time, the Chiefs give Patrick Mahomes a huge deal that's going to raise the price on quarterbacks. We're going to see the Houston Texans give a big deal to Deshaun Watson, which is going to raise the price on quarterbacks. And let's be honest, the price on quarterbacks never goes down. And so the price on Dak is only going to go up. And he's going to get to play this season, now that he's contractually obligated to, with players like Ezekiel Elliott, 
and Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup and C.D. Lamb and that great offensive line, Dak Prescott's not going to struggle this year. He's going to play well. And once he does play well, his price is going to go up. And so the Dallas Cowboys now find themselves, in my mind, in a challenging position of trying to get done a deal with a player who's got more leverage than people think. We could debate how good Dak is or isn't. There are people who think he's excellent, great, very good, just good, whatever it may be. The fact of the matter is, is that he now has the leverage because there are not many players who wind up playing as a quarterback under the franchise tag for one year, no less two years, which Dak Prescott is now going to do. Tough spot for the Dallas Cowboys to be in. A good spot for Dak Prescott to be in. All right, as the NBA is planning to make its return to television, make sure you're keeping up with all things in and around the NBA with Brian Windhorse and the Hoop Collective podcast. Be sure to download and subscribe to the Hoop Collective as well as the Adam Schefter podcast and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And oh, by the way, one other thought as I think about the Cowboys now, and I'm thinking of all the Cowboy fans who want to see them trade for Jamal Adams. How do you think the Cowboys are going to pay Jamal Adams and Dak Prescott and Ezekiel Elliott and Amari Cooper? It's not realistic. It's not practical. So I know that the Cowboys fans want to trade for Jamal Adams, and Jamal Adams wants to go to Dallas, and maybe that will one day happen. But I don't know how realistic that is. So let's let's look at things in a more realistic way. And on that note, I know there's a lot going on right now in the world, and we're all shopping online. Just saw that AT&T started doing two really helpful things for those who want to buy a new phone or device online. They're offering fast, free, no-contact delivery and curbside pickup so that online shopping is as simple as and as safe as possible. On top of that, they have a flexible return policy, so you can shop at ease. You can visit AT&T.com to learn how to shop online from the safety of your home 24-7, subject to change restrictions apply. And now, for my first guest this week, the CNN reporter who made national headlines, who has been on your TV screen, the man who is on the scene in Minneapolis, former Medill graduate like myself, Omar Jimenez. I need to start out with that morning on May 29th when police detained you. And while you were on air, which I I don't know that I've ever seen that before. And I just want to know that night you were on Don Lemon on CNN and you Mm -hmm. talked about what was going through your mind, how it was a major concern for your mother. Like you were thinking of your mom at that time. Well, I mean, for, for something like that, you know, they're in the initial shock of what's happening. You know, I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other, right? I'm trying to figure out what is actually happening right now. Are they actually arresting us for doing what we've been doing over the course of the entire week and what we've been doing for an entire career? And so that was that was the initial, again, and trying to figure out what was going to happen to me. And then I, I learned from some higher ups at our company first that, um, I mean, our, our CEO, Jeff Zucker, he, he told me, he said, hey, I made the most important call of your life for you, by the way, while you were in there. And I'm thinking, oh, thank you for making a call to the governor. I really appreciate that. And he said, no, I called your mom. And I was like, oh, my gosh, my mom. Like, like it wasn't the first thing that was in my head, but now I realized, oh, my gosh. So when I finally was actually able to talk to her, I mean, she, she had calmed down a little bit, but she told me she had been bursting out in tears and that so many thoughts had gone through her head. And she even helped me contextualize kind of what happened in the significance 
of what happened for better or for worse, mainly just by the fact that she's drawn comfort over the years in being able to see me on TV. Even though I'm not living in Atlanta, I'm not living at home, she can't see me every day, she sees me on TV and in some stretch of the imagination knows that I'm okay. So when she sees this happen to me on TV in a habitual fashion like she's used to, she sees me being led away and then all of a sudden she can't see me anymore. And that moment, I think, hit her harder. I think, any, I think any mother can relate to that moment because all of a sudden she did not know if I was okay. And I was, wasn't booked into the system anywhere, so she was calling around, calling desperately, trying to figure out where I was, but there was no record of me anywhere. So I was in this limbo where anything could have happened to me, and that was, I think, the motherly instinct kicking in. And what was going through your mind at that time? Yeah, I mean... My mind, uh, a million things. Uh, I mentioned the trying to put one foot in front of the other, but then also just trying to figure out what could have possessed them to take that extra step and what could have possessed them. And again, to not be as honest as they should have been when it came time for them to explain what happened. I mean, there were no words exchanged between myself and Minnesota State Police that morning, except for you're under arrest. Nothing leading up to... Nothing that led up to it that said, oh, why don't you move over here? Or we have to be here. Get out of the way. Nothing like that. And so, um, and so trying to figure that out. And then after it happened, you know, there's an opportunity to say, okay, you know, maybe there was a mix-up. Maybe there was whatever. They put out a tweet saying that, well, we had to verify that they were members of the media, which, look, I'll give that to them for the first 15 minutes. Or so, but we were put in the police van on site there um, and sat there before we went anywhere in cuffs for about for a good 30, 35 minutes. In that time, we already knew plenty of people watched it live and were freaking out about it. You could have pulled up Twitter. You had my information. Google me at that point, not to mention the press ID that I had showed in the moment. And so that explanation was a little puzzling trying to unpiece that um, afterwards. And, and our, our organization shot that down pretty quickly, as they should have. And, and the governor of Minnesota, Tim Walls, was very great and gracious in reaching out to us and making sure we were okay and apologizing. Um, but yeah, in that moment, it was just a lot of confusion and trying to process. Because also, one other point I'll add to that is that while the world was freaking out and everyone's yeah. tweeting and everyone's messaging me, making sure I'm okay, <laughs> I'm still trying to go back to do my job and report on the story. So there's a whole set of work emails that are coming in, personal emails and texts, and it was just kind of a almost surreal space to operate in, um, in at least the beginning few hours. When did you know, Omar, that that event, the group of state police officers detaining you, had mm -hmm. taken on the life that it did? So I knew it was taking off, actually, in the walk to the police van. And the reason I knew that is because they took everything out of my possession. But uh, you, as, as, as a reporter, will know, we often wear IFBs or earpieces yeah. in our ear. And I had a wireless one. And so they took everything from me, but I could still hear the show in my ear. And so I could hear our anchors at the time, John Berman and Allison Camerata, who were in disbelief, trying to explain. And I think I could, I almost understood the gravity of what had happened just by the mannerisms of them trying to process live on air what had happened. And then I still had on my Apple watch. So I was getting all the notifications from my phone <laughs> and I could just feel it every second going off with a tweet 
with a text, with a tweet, with a call, with a tweet, with a text. And I said, wow, uh, I think there were people watching that. And I think there were people reacting to it. And it, it wasn't until, honestly, I was finally able to check out, uh, get back to my phone on the other side. And I had people from all walks of life contacting me, people uh, like yourself, um, people, uh, other people in the media. I had senators calling. I had some of our own anchors and higher-ups calling. And it hit me like, wow, this really had an impact on people. Um, and I think part of hearing how it affected them from their perspective sort of brought it home for me to say, oh, this was why it had an impact. And I get that. I understand that. And these are all things that were hard for me to process in the immediate aftermath, again, because so much is happening. And then I'm also trying to, again, go back to cover the George Floyd story. And it's been almost a month now. You're now at the back end of CNN's ad. I've seen that a bunch of times. How has mm-hmm. this one event changed your life? Well, it's changed it in a lot of ways. Um, I, I think one in regards to perspective, um, we talked about sort of my reaction in the initial aftermath. Well, now that I've had time to process it, I've more importantly had time to contextualize it, right? And realize that what happened in my arrest or my detain, cuff and detaining was symbolic of the story that I was actually covering. The larger story at its core, as awful as it was, was about an interaction that went wrong between police and a member of the community and it was filmed. And then all of a sudden, here I am, not as, not as serious, fatally, thankfully, but at the same time, an interaction between a member of the community, a media community, the police, and it's being filmed and happens to be on live TV. Those, that was a luxury that I had, but it didn't matter. I still ended up in cuffs. It didn't matter for George Floyd. He still ended up with a knee on his neck. And what it, it taught me, or it's, it's forced me to realize, for better or for worse, is the amount of interactions that are happening in that same manner, but aren't on live TV, aren't being filmed by a cell phone camera with multiple witnesses around. And, and so it, it's, it's given me, I think, a little bit more perspective and a sensitivity when covering issues like this and when I'm watching and reading about incidents like this. So that's one. And then just from a, a personal level, I mean, fact, point blank, the number of followers I had shot through the roof. And so with that, on, on, you know, that is fun to have, but also with that comes an added, an added responsibility, an added weight to what I say, knowing that if I'm going to say something or if I'm going to cover something or if I'm going to emphasize something, I need to really mean it because I know it's going to have an impact. And so I think those are the two things that, that really stick out to me as far as, as far as changing my life on a, on a, on a conceptual basis. Um, and then just on a physical basis, makes me appreciate sleep a whole lot more because things have gotten really busy. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, you know, there's that, ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, that's hard when you're in one of those stories and you're not getting to sleep much and you're operating like that as you did there for a, for a good long period. You mentioned all the people that reached out to you. It was on your Apple Watch, all your added followers. Was there one person that reached out to you like, wow, I can't believe that I just heard from so-and-so? Yeah, um, I actually think the one that did, and I'm okay saying this because she admitted it already, yeah. um, was uh, was Senator Amy Klobuchar of, of Minnesota, um, who uh, I had heard from a colleague. She's like, hey, she wants to reach out to you. I said, what, really? And uh, and yeah, and she, she called, and it was a very good conversation. She, she apologized for what had happened on behalf of her state, obviously, 
but also we just had a really good person to person conversation. And um, I think I really appreciated that now that I'd heard from people at the state level, local, and then of course her as well. And then also uh, you'll appreciate this as well. This wasn't a call, but it was actually an email from the president of Northwestern, President Morty Shapiro, who we revered as students. I mean, that getting a message and acknowledgement from Morty at Northwestern is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And uh, he shot me a message um, and CC'd uh, a a few people like uh, that you'll know as well, Michael Wilbon and Christine Brennan, people I've I've followed for a long time. Um, And just to sort of be, again, in that conversation, in a sense, and and I, I joke, but literally to have Morty's acknowledgement um, was a uh, was was definitely felt good. And that those were like the two I, I feel like widest range of people. And then of course there were the people within our network, um, within my family, friends of all walks of life, um, who who I really appreciated uh, reaching out and was surprised in some cases. Omar, just big picture. Obviously, yeah. that story that day was so significant with you but what about just being in minnesota at such a historic time and seeing everybody react to george floyd's death what was it like just to be there and what did you take away from that big picture well to to be there was uh, it was surreal i mean everywhere you are not everywhere but but one of the main locations we walked around that third police precinct, for example, which is where I was reporting when this happened. I mean, every single building had been burned out. Every single building had been destroyed. Every night you're seeing anger and people saying, I think one of the things that stuck with me from some of the protesters is they were getting criticism at the time for for burning things and destroying things who the criticism was, that's not how you protest, you peacefully protest, which that was happening during the day. But one of the things that the protesters said to me was, look, we've had scenarios like this all the time where there's another hashtag, there's another name, there's another person that's killed in an awful interaction with police. And we've tried peaceful protesting, but this is the only way people seem to listen. This is the only way that people in in the right places seem to listen. And that changed my, my entire perspective. I think I had known that in some cases, but that was not with me being there, with me being there and seeing that they didn't want to have to do this, but we were at such a place in the country where there seemed to be no other options. That's something that sticks with me. And then every single day, uh, I'll point to something the governor said to me personally, was um, we were at the, the, the site, ground zero, so to speak, of where this happened at the intersection where, where George Floyd was seen on that awful cell phone video. The governor walked up to me and, and it started as a, a literal personal apology for, for what happened with, with state police a few days prior at that point. But one of the other more profound things he said was that I don't think we get another chance to fix this. And that to me showed that, oh, this is different because the urgency isn't just coming from the black community. The urgency has now spread to communities outside of it where it's not viewed as a black problem. It's now viewed as an American problem. And I think that transition was so important and so different in anything I've ever seen or covered. I worked local in the after, in Baltimore in the aftermath of what happened with Freddie Gray and seeing the policies that were trying to be formed and, and, and what was trying to be done as a result of that didn't seem to even have the urgency that we're seeing now. That within a matter of days, weeks in some cases, we're seeing policy changes. We're seeing 
people, again, of all faiths in every city you can think of marching through the streets, chanting Black Lives Matter. I just think that that this moment, we'll see what, what it ends up producing. But at least for now, on, on a visceral level, this moment seems to be different. And what do you think it will wind up producing, Omar? It's produced a lot of attention so yeah. far. It's produced what feels like, to me, meaningful momentum. But yeah. again, where well, does that go? Where does that go? Yeah, uh, and that's, that's what remains to be seen, right? We've seen some specific examples in Minneapolis, for example, the city council uh, vote. They were waiting on a state investigation to play out into the police department to determine how to proceed with discipline or, or changes for that department. The city council said, we can't wait that long. And they voted to put in place uh, policies banning chokeholds, increasing accountability for police officers because there was that urgency. When I think in the past, there wasn't. In Baltimore, for example, the the police department, there's about $22 million that's being disinvested from the police department and put elsewhere. These are these are steps, concrete steps that I think weren't happening with the level of urgency that we're seeing now. And I think that is going to ultimately be the legacy. I mean, you had a NASCAR driver with Black Lives Matter on, on one of their cars as the Confederate flag is now ba- banned from NASCAR events. And what all the events leading up to this, that never happened. That was never even in the discussion. And boom, it just happens in a matter of minutes. I mean, the NFL, which you cover, is now grappling with its own stances uh, in regards to that movement over the course of the past years and the whole Colin Kaepernick saga. And so I think there is a momentum now that it's now touching so many different aspects of life, places that didn't even believe they may have needed it in the first place. You've got companies declaring Juneteenth which is uh, June 19th today, that uh, declaring it a holiday for their employees, which a year ago, they may not even have acknowledged Juneteenth as a thing outside of their black employees. So I think there are steps that are being taken. Um, to be honest, I don't know what the long-term, you know, end-all, be-all policy is going to be. But what I am encouraged by um, as a reporter and as a person is that, there are people making concrete steps and realizing that we can't wait until the next hashtag, the next black body, the next unfortunate interaction with police comes. We have to do it now. Um, and I think that's important and that's what people should be, should be paying attention to. You bring up the NFL. I would think, and we'll see how this unfolds, but I would think that we're going to see many, many players, if not all players, Neil, I think that's going to be just matter of practice. I think we're going to see a lot of coaches, Neil. It wouldn't surprise me if we see some teams in their entirety, Neil. And some people, it's amazing, are so opposed to that idea. Um, and there's still such a war there, yeah. and it was such an issue in 2017. But it's also amazing to me that people don't understand the issue now and don't understand what's behind it, that they're still not fully grasping what that means and the significance of it. And I just think that you know, the NFL with its platform, assuming that the games can go on with COVID and everything like that, it's going to send an even stronger message this year and help heighten everybody's awareness about it as it should be doing. Well, and uh, and I think you look no further than than what happened with, with Drew Brees, for example, when, when he spoke out in, in the way that he did and, and the pain that some of his teammates and others across the league spoke out, right? I, I think the ability or the confidence, I would say, from some of those other players feeling that they could speak out 
And even if it was against a player that, that was beloved throughout the league, or at least a very good player in the league, which pains me to say as a Falcons fan, but at the very least, them knowing that, hey, maybe I, I don't, I feel like I'm in a good place to where I can say something against this quarterback because I feel that it's wrong and that I will have support amongst my players or at least within some spaces within the league. I think having at the very least that was a step that we may not have seen in the past, or there, it may have been viewed um, with a little bit less impunity in the past. And I think it, it's part of the changing dynamics of what we're seeing in all, in all sports, uh, to be honest, the, the sort of merging of the lines between, uh, between personal beliefs and activism in some cases with your responsibilities as an athlete and the platform uh, that you have. Um, and so I, I don't know. I, just, I think it's interesting. I, I think there are conversations that are that are gonna that are gonna continue. Um, but I but I do think there is a lot more. I don't know if pressure is the right word, but I'm gonna use it mm-hmm. on on speaking out against things that you believe are wrong, and knowing that you're gonna have a support system that will keep you from losing your job. Yeah. You bring up being a Falcons fan, um, not to. Yes. Rub any salt in or more. And it's like, were you at that Super <laughs> Were you at that Super um, I, I really, I really wanted to be. I look in hindsight, I'm glad I wasn't, but I was in <laughs> Atlanta for it. I was living in Baltimore and I remember trying to take off work and they wouldn't let me. And so I went basically to another coworker and asked if they would switch off days with me, which they did. So I flew to Atlanta for one night to watch it with all of my friends in uh i think it was in midtown where we were at a brewery and it was amazing for the first three quarters it was like the best thing you could possibly imagine and then it was the worst thing you could possibly imagine and it will live on that way for the rest of history it makes me really sad i think about it It still wakes me up all these years later in the middle of the night every time i hear anything about oh well you know the falcons offense you know it's something to be reckoned with, yes, I know I've seen the peak of what our offense can look like that year. We were the number one offense in the league, and it didn't matter. We had an MVP season with Matt Ryan. didn't matter. So I am now a very cautious Falcons fan. I still love, I still love my Dirty Birds. I uh, still have confidence in Dan Quinn, um, but, uh, but what, I'm taking it one game at a time right now. <laughs> So and how you don't feel great about the season? You're you're just very re- laid back about it, reserved, not going to be too excited I, about the Falcons' hopes for this year. No, I I I am I'm always excited and I'm always optimistic. But I think now more than ever, I think I realize that we've got to take it one game at a time. Um, I mean, look, Matt Ryan isn't getting any younger. Julio Jones isn't getting any younger. Um, which I mean, I love that combo and I love them forever. Um, and so I like the core that we have. I think we still need some pieces, but I like the core that we have. And I want to try and take advantage of that before it eventually, as, as many teams do, turns into a, a rebuild or, or a complete shift around. Um, and so I know that we have to take advantage of what we have right now. But I also know I'm not looking ahead to Super Bowl right now, even though I'd love it. I'm going to take it one game at a time. Let's analyze. Let's see how we do. I hope we win every game. No, it's not going to happen. But I have, I don't want to set my hopes too high because I don't want to disappoint myself. (laughs) 
You're only 26 years old. Did you ever give any thought to going into sports reporting as opposed to the type of reporting that you did? Or is this something that you always wanted to do back to your time at Northwestern after your walk-on tryout and your journalism and uh, uh, career and working with the Chicago Innocence Project to investigate wrongful convictions? So what's funny, it's funny that you bring that up. My first sort of experience of like, oh, my gosh, I want to do that was watching – was watching Stuart Scott, rest in peace, him and Scott Van Pelt doing Sports Center when I was in middle wow. school. I don't know why, just like every, I mean, they're amazing. I do know why. But every single night I was watching them, I was repeating catchphrases uh, from them because I thought, wow, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. And I still have a soft spot in my heart for, for sports reporting. When I got to college at Northwestern, go Cats, I started doing it, like actually doing the work of, of covering baseball games, um, I think was the first sport I covered freshman year, um, and then covering some football games uh, as well. What I realized was while I love sports, it's a different level when you actually have to do it for a living. Like I, I didn't quite like having to do so much homework just to go to a football game, you know, or doing so much homework just to go to a baseball game. And it's not just knowing the players, it's knowing the history, it's knowing all this stuff. And so that turned me off a little bit from the job. But then I took a step back and started doing news and realized there was this whole range of stories I could do. And they even touched sports every once in a while. Um, and so I started doing it. And I think I just, I think I just fell in love with the ability to storytell and, and the people that I met along the way. And I'm not ruling out sports forever. I don't know, that, but I don't know that I could do, you know, like play by play color commentary or full-time sports. But, you know, something along the lines of, of like what you all do, um, you know, like the, an E60 or real sports where the worlds are sort of merged a little bit. Wow. That would be pretty awesome. That would be pretty awesome at some point down the line. Oh, well, let's create the dream job for you. Would that be it? Let, let me look. We, we, let's speak out, right? Hopefully some of my colleagues are listening, some of my bosses. my what, what does Omar Jimenez want to do? What do, what do we have to do to – kind of help you bridge this transition and, and uh, create the dream job for you. Oh my gosh. I mean, like that, I, I think that's always been a part of me. I, I think I have so many aspects of my life that, that, that I love. I've been, I've been blessed in that I've been able to explore a lot of different aspects from music to, to sports. Um, I even did some acting in, in college. And of course, news is my main profession uh, right now. But I think eventually I would like to get to a place where, you know, all of those worlds are sort of colliding, you know? Um, I think as far as programs that are out there, sure, like the, the E60s of the world and real sports um, uh, on HBO is the immediate, is the immediate sort of like, oh, I could see myself, you know, doing that as part of my work at some point. Um, but, but, you know, for, for now, it's, it's kind of like, I feel good in where I am. And I think what I learned in this just from a, just from, you know, maybe even just a business perspective is that this did open up a lot of doors for me. And right now it's trying to keep doing what I do, but then also trying to see, all right, well, you know, what is out there? Um, how can I grow and again, bridge some of those interests that, that I was bringing up before? So, you know, Let's see. Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's see what happens. What I would say is, you know what? Listen, you're like I said, you're 26 years old, right? Just keep doing yeah. what you're doing. Keep doing great work. Keep getting noticed in a good way. And good things are bound to happen. I just think that that's the best thing is 
if you just do your job, these things, they wind up coming to you, Omar. That's what winds up happening to me. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm getting a little taste of that now. Even even internally, the conversations I have with people that I've known for for a long time, um, I, I think it almost reminds them some of the things that that I believe were already there. And I've always said one of the one of the sayings that that stuck with me and will always is that uh, you know luck is when timing meets preparation, right? And so in some ways, yes, I it was lucky, right time, right place. But at the same time, there there was a there has been a really intense workload and and uh, and set of instances that has forged sort of what happened in those few moments, right? The few moments that everybody saw. Um, and so and so I am excited at that prospect, and I'm excited to keep to keep pushing this and and, and see how far it goes. That's the mentality I've always had as as an athlete, even to try and push that threshold to get on the team at Northwestern. And, um, and, and I think it's a mentality that's gotten me this far. So we're going to keep doing it. And has CNN given you some time off after your work in Minneapolis or are you back on the beat off to somewhere else? What is the short term future for Omar Jimenez here? So I already squeezed in some vacation, man. I got, I got it in right after, right after it was over. Um, Got away from the phone and everything for a while, which is awesome. And, uh, I started back at work midway through this week and, uh, it's been, it's been a good transition back. Um, and I think even my, it was one of the few times where myself, my managers, our higher ups were all in agreement. It was like, yeah, yeah, take, take some days. I'm like, good. Thank you. <laughs> That's how it should be. Well deserved. And make sure you call your mom and make sure she knows that you're okay. And I appreciate sure. you taking some time today and. We'll root for the Falcons for you for this year. We'll continue watching you on CNN. And I want to thank you very much for your time. It's an honor and a pleasure to get to speak to you. And like I said, when I looked down, I saw, oh, Omar went to Medill. Oh, went to Northwestern. Here we go. I got to reach out to him. I got to get him on my podcast here. I'm glad I did. Thank for you sure. very much for that time. And, and, I, and I, will say, I will say as well, Adam, you're someone I've watched for a long time. I really appreciate the opportunity coming on. This is kind of surreal for me, too. And I will throw I didn't want to say it in the moment, but you're definitely in the list of unbelievable, unbelievable people that reached out in the aftermath. I was like, oh, my, Adam, I texted my friend Nick. I was like, hey, Adam Schefter wants me to He's like, do it, do it. So I'm glad we were able to make this a reality. And there is the 26 year old CNN reporter, Omar Jimenez, who's got a tremendous career ahead of him in news, sports, whatever he wants to do. Before we get to the Vikings, co-defensive coordinator and defensive line coach, and a man who started a player-led social justice committee with the Vikings organization three and a half years ago, first a word from State Farm, with real guidance and the right coach, NBA teams go from good to great. Just like real help from your State Farm agent can make all the difference in protecting what matters most. Talk to a State Farm agent today about combining your home and auto insurance and get a teammate who can help guide you through whatever life throws your way. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And now, for a man with infinite wisdom, a man who is very thoughtful, in addition to being a great defensive football coach, the Vikings co-defensive coordinator and defensive line coach, Andre Patterson. Hey, Adam. How you doing, man? Nice to talk with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Oh, no problem. Just got done with meetings, so... Just finished up. You know, it, 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 even though we've been uh, 
you know, stuck at home doing this. It's still been like regular work. <laughs> out of meetings and into a call with me. That's that's a long day, Andre. That's too much to ask. <laughs> I apologize in advance for that. Nah, that's okay. That, that, that's that's tough work. <laughs> that's okay. I'm good. If, for you, I said I'd do it. <laughs> now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did did our paths cross in Denver while you were there? Yes, it did. That's where that's where I first got to meet you. You know, I, matter of fact, I don't know if you remember, but when I came there, you know, everybody was was getting after you know Mike Shanahan because he trusted <laughs> me to bring all those D linemen over from Cleveland. Oh, and you and, and you and you you did you did a little deal with me on that, you know, because. And the off season, people were saying, "Why is he listening to Andre Patterson bringing all these D linemen from Cleveland?" And then all of a sudden, no, those guys played great for us. And then uh, you know, me and Coach Shanahan look like geniuses. <laughs> it's not the first time that someone's doubted a Shanahan. Where usually the Shanahans have come out on top. I mean, how many times yeah. have you seen that with Mike and with Kyle too? Both of them throughout yeah. the entire time, yeah. right? Well, oh yeah, and we, you know, we brought a boatload. You know, Courtney Brown, Michael Myers, Gerard Warren, Ebenezer Ekebon, uh, and wow. I'm forgetting one more. But all, all those guys, you know, came came with me from uh, from Cleveland, and you know, that's the year we were really, really good on defense. You know, the funny thing about it is Mike caught some gruff the first time for bringing in former Browns defensive lineman. He did the same thing back in the mid 1990s. With Michael Dean Perry and James Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you remember I remember that. that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's uh, he's, he's done that before. And, and 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 when I look at your resume there, Andre, if my math is off, please correct me. But I think it's eighteen different stops over thirty-eight years. That's yeah, a that lot of stops it. and a lot of coach, a lot of players, a lot of coaching, a lot yeah. of wisdom. Yeah, that that sounds about right. I, I always uh, tell my wife and and kids, you know, we we live the gypsy life in this business. And what have you learned about that living a gypsy life, Andre? Uh, you know, Adam, I you know, I think for my kids, it's it's kind of like being you know being a military kid, you know, and you know, as they you know have gotten older, you know, my son is twenty eight now, and my daughter is uh, twenty one. You know, they've been able to handle themselves in all different types of situations great because of the experience of of moving so much and having to make new friends and, and uh you know, getting used to being in a different place. So uh you know, I, I think it's uh you know, I think it ended up helping them out a lot, you know, as they've become, you know, young adults. When you look back on those thirty eight years that started in Montana in nineteen eighty two and continued at Renton High School and Santa Monica Catholic High School and Weber State and Western Michigan and on and on and on, all the way we go with two different stops in Minnesota. It's a general question, Andre. What stands out to you as you look back over this 38-year body of work? Uh, you know, I, I, I got a chance to meet and, and become friends with, uh, you know, a, a wide brass group of people. And uh, I think over the years, that's really helped me, you know, be able to deal with all different kinds of situations, all different kinds of players, you know. So, you know, my response to different things are are, are usually pretty quick and um, uh, no no panic because I've been there before. 
So, you know, I, I think all those experiences have, have, have helped me grow as a coach and as a person, most importantly. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out today, basically, you've been at the forefront of this team's player-led social justice committee that basically began to be put together not in the last month or two with all the events in Minnesota and around the country, but three years ago. And so what have you seen from this movement now and what kind of momentum have you seen that leads you to think that right now we're in a different and better spot than we were three years ago? Well, you know, first first thing, Adam, I like to say, you know, uh, I have a great deal of appreciation for our ownership, uh, for Rick Spillman, for Coach Zimmer, for being being progressive and allowing us to put this, you know, committee group together. And, uh, you know, you didn't have to have a tragic thing happen, you know, that, that happened, you know, three or four weeks ago to get that conversation started, you know. Um, you know, I had a meeting with Rick. Uh, we came up with the idea, went to ownership, went to Zim. They were all on board. You know, we selected uh, a group of players to be a part of that committee. And there, the players desire and hunger Adam to be in this with everything they've got uh, has been very, very impressive to me. And, uh, you know, and to see how involved they have been over the last three years has just been outstanding. You know, uh, the thing that happens, Adam, is, you know, it's easy for ownership to just throw some money at something, you know, yeah. but, but, our, but our owners are involved. You know, it's easy for players to just show up and, and you know, people just be happy that, that they get a chance to meet them. Uh, but our, our players are involved, that they are passionate about it. And they spend a lot of their free times involved in all different types of uh, uh, groups uh, to, to try to to make a difference. And so uh, when this happened, you know, we were able to hit the ground running because our guys have already been involved and they had already been active. You know, they you know, we had already had a relationship with the police chief uh, in Minneapolis and had met with him several times. So a week after everything went down, we had a group of players go over and have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the chief of police uh, in Minneapolis and, and, and try to express ideas of, of uh, number one, how they can help. Number two, the things that, that, that they could see that uh, the department needed to change and so on and so forth. And, you know, I don't know, you know, very many teams that could have that direct access to the chief of police that fast. And the only reason we were able to do it is because we already had a relationship with him. And did he lean on you or your players for any ideas? What came out of those meetings, Andre? Yeah, so, but he did, you know, and he, he uh, you know, he wanted ideas from us on, on, on ways that the department could go. Um, and, and he expressed uh, uh, ideas to them about where he wanted the department to go. But I think, Adam, the most important thing, he was able to express his own frustration of, of, he, of how he can't handle things the way he, he wants to, uh, you know, because of the union. And so that was important for our guys to hear that, you know, that the, the chief would like to do X, Y, and Z, but he can't. 
because of uh, the restrictions that he has in dealing with the union. You know, and our guys were able to come back and virtually, you know, uh, express those deals to our players and to give our players an understanding of the big picture. And uh, so, you know, I, I thought that was a really good thing, you know, for our, for our guys to be able to bring that kind of information, you know, back to our team. What was it like to be in your city over the last month at the center of this uprising that really, in my mind, started where you now live? And you've had this social justice committee fighting for the exact type of issues that have moved into the forefront of our society. Uh, it was really, it was really difficult, Adam. Um, you know, it took it took me a week in order to to watch the video. I, I, wow. I just couldn't, I just could, I couldn't watch it just because I knew what I was going to see, and I had to mentally prepare myself to be able to uh, to handle that. Uh, and so, you know, it took me a week to be able to do that, uh, and you know, to to see the protests. And to see the variety of people that were out there protesting uh, was a positive thing, you know. But then when it got into the rioting and the loot and the looting, you know, that that hurt my heart to to, to see, um, you know, it change from from protesting and 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 people being able to use their voices in a positive way to try to get change to happen to have a group of people try to take take it and turn it into something to uh uh that it shouldn't have been um but uh i, I tell you this adam you know uh, to me this one's different and the reason why it's different is because for years you know black people have been saying that we have an issue and it, i think it's been difficult for some people to believe that that you know the police would do that to anyone without them doing anything wrong and uh you know the guy had to you know to run or you know, resist arrest or whatever the case may be. But, you know, this one was different because it was it was videotaped from start to finish and everyone was able to see, you know, life leave this man's body. And I think it touched, you know, I think it touched the world to, to for them to all be able to see that. And um, I think that's why you see the passion that you see today. You mentioned it took you one week to watch the video. Because you knew what you were going to see, right? You knew what you were going to see. Yes. I knew what I was going to see, yes. And once you did see it, how would you describe what you felt, Andre? Um, it was very difficult not to fight back tears. Um, you know, the first thing that, that, go, that went through my mind is that could have been me. You know, that could have been my son. Um, you know, and so it's, it's, it's taken all those those ideas that pop in your head, it, it brought me back, you know, Adam, to my childhood. You know, I'm a I'm a child of the '60s, and so uh, you know, through all through all of my childhood, you know, I've I've been, you know, around things like that and seen some pretty bad things that have that have occurred. And um, you know, as you get older, you know, uh, you, you always want things to be better. You want things to be better for your children. And to, to know that, that my son and my daughter are now going to look and watch that and they're going to feel like I felt when I was a kid, when things were happening through the 60s and the 70s, um, you know, that hurt me. You know, it hurt me. And, and, uh, and so I had to try to find a way to take that anger 
and try to, uh, you know, turn it into something positive and, and how I can help. You talked about some of the things you've seen. What have you, what has stayed with you all these years, living the life you've had, being the places you've been, and growing up when you did? Well, you know, I'm, I'm from Richmond, California, and, uh, you know, the Panthers were, the Black Panthers were real big, you know, in, in, in my community as a, uh, you know, as a child, um, you know, uh, so, you know, I, I was growing up during the time of the Watts riots and, you know, the riots just didn't occur, you know, and watch. They happened, you know, all over uh, the state of California and all over the country at that time. And, you know, we had we had a lot of uh, stores, uh, buildings burnt down during that time. And the sad part about it is they never were replaced. You know, they, they never were replaced. And so you got, to, you know, in the long term, the people who got hurt was us because now we had to go farther to the shop to go get groceries. We had to go farther to go to uh, buy clothes or whatever the case may be. Uh, and so, you know, to see that happening in Minneapolis, I'm like, okay, this is this is deja vu all over again, you know. And then, you know, I happened to be in L.A. spring recruiting. I was coaching at Washington State at the time uh, when the Rodney Kings riot riots happened, and uh, you know, so. Uh, to see that and and uh, be right there when it was you know when it was going down, uh, so all those all those old experiences you know come back in your head, and 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 and, and you try to tell yourself okay, um, it's okay to be mad, it's okay to be angry, but how can I channel that into something positive? And I think you know I, I had to learn that. Uh, through life, and it wasn't it wasn't something that when I was younger I would just stay mad. You know, I would just stay mad and angry at the world. And uh, as I've gotten older, I've I've found ways to try to channel that energy to try to to turn it into something positive. How did you learn that? Because I'm sure there's been uh, enough that made you mad enough over time that you wanted to vent and rage and be angry and mad. And and it sounds like. You're at a different point in your life with the perspective that you've gained. Yes, and and you know when we when we had the meeting with our players, you know the the uh, the Monday after everything went down, and you know our owners talked to the players. Uh, Rick visit with the players, and then I visited with the players. And the thing that I told them is that if we were all together and and we didn't have to do this virtually, they would be in the locker room talking to each other. And, and being able to let it out and, and vent and, and, and guys are listening to each other, uh, and that they needed to do that. You know, even, even though they had to do it on the computer, they had to call one another or they had to text one another, they needed to do that. And, and, and that's the number one thing that I learned that you have to do is you, you have to get it out. You have to express how you feel and it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be mad. But you got to let it out. You got to talk. And then secondly, the most important thing is you got to be willing to listen. And I, I think that's the biggest thing, Adam, is that there is it's one thing for for me to let you talk. But it's more important that I listen. We don't have to agree. You know, we don't have to agree uh, on how we see things. But if I'm willing to listen to what you're saying and truly listen to what you're saying and not put not think about preparing what I'm going to say to try to flip you. 
then we're able to usually come to an agreement because we're able to understand how each of us feel. And so that was the biggest thing that I wanted to get across to the players is, you know, you got to listen. And if you've got younger brothers and sisters, you know, it's very important that they sit down and visit with them because they've got all these, they've got all those uh, things sitting on them right now because it's the first time in their lives that they've seen something like that. So they've got anger, they've got frustration, but most importantly, they've got fear. Okay. They've got fear. And how do they deal with that? So the biggest thing is they needed to listen and, uh, and share those deals with their, with the young, with the young people in their families. Andre, you bring up those meetings on Monday and in my talks with various people and various organizations across the league, the one thing that's come back to me is those meetings after what took place in your city about a month ago were some of the most powerful emotional moments that players and coaches have experienced. When you look back to that meeting that Monday where your owners spoke to the team and you spoke to the team, was there a single moment or message that stood out to you, that impacted you, that will stay with you for a while, being how powerful these meetings were? You know, I, you know, I think, you know, our owners, you know, talking about, you know, what it, what it was for them of being uh, children of the Holocaust and them having an understanding, you know, what what, uh, you know, people of, of color are going through, I think was, was very big for me and very big for our players. Um, the one story I'll tell you, you know, Adam, is, is the first year we put this group together and we had our first meeting. <laughs> the first thing that I did is I said, okay, we're going to open this thing up and I want, I want each guy to go around and tell the group where you're from, okay? Tell the group about your family, and if anyone in your family or yourself had any experiences that were negative uh, with the law, share those experiences. And Adam, that was the most powerful meeting I've ever been in in my coaching career. And I think if you talk to any of the players that were in there, because it was a wide group of players that were in there, it was the same thing for them too. It was it was an eye opener. You know, because you you know you've had guys you had guys like or you know Riley Reef that's from Iowa that had no experience, no idea that this kind of stuff went on. You know, sitting next to uh, Anthony Barr, who's expressing things that have happened to him or you know happened to family members, and it was it was a, a very emotional uh, brought the group together. But I I think the biggest thing is everybody had a great understanding of where other people were coming from and respect each other's opinions. And uh, that, that was one of the most dynamic, explosive moments that I've had in my coaching career. So you're talking about the meetings back in 2017 when you guys formed the Social Justice Committee, right, when the controversy erupted over Colin Kaepernick and other players kneeling during the anthem. Is that correct? Yes, exactly right. Yep, yep. And and when you talk about those meetings, it sounds like, and correct if I'm wrong, Andre, white people and black people had just two totally different upbringings. And so you get a guy like Riley Reef who's got no idea 
of some of these instances of racism and inequality while you get other players like an Anthony Barr that speak about their incidents with the law, correct? Exactly right. Exactly and right. You know, you have Adam Thielen right here from Minneapolis, you know, you know, went to a small division two schools, you know, sitting next to the Diggs and they're, you know, they're great friends. And Adam Thielen, you know, his, his upbringing, his experiences are all positive. And then right. Diggs can, you know, go through what has happened to family members that have gotten killed and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a touching experience for everybody. Was there one moment in particular that just stands out to you, being that it was so powerful? The the conversation between, you know, uh, Biggs and Thielen was outstanding because they love one another. You know what I mean? They're brothers. They love one another. But on the same hand, they come from total different worlds, total different worlds. You know, and I, and, and I, I just remember Adam Thielen saying, I never knew that this goes on and I'm sorry, what can I do? And so to me, I think that's the thing that's very powerful about the, uh, the hunger and desire that the guys have in our group to, uh, to try to make a difference is it's just not the black players on our team. It's all the players on our team that are in this group that are uh, very passionate. And the thing that they've done over the years is they've brought it down to the locker room. So even though guys that may not be a part of the committee, they're still going to functions and putting their time in too because the group has brought brought them along. And for those who don't know, Andre, let me just point out that we mentioned the Vikings owners, Mark and Ziggy Wolf. They've been actively engaged in this social justice committee. And in June, earlier this month, they announced a $5 million donation to social justice causes throughout the United States building on their previous donations of $250,000 in 2018 and 2019. The, the club's also funded a scholarship in George Floyd's name. The contributions mm-hmm. from the fund will be determined in part through collaboration uh, with the players and directed towards organizations fighting hate, racism, and inequality. Your social justice committee um, has met with, as you mentioned, the police chief, it's been to the fire department, it's been to the juvenile detention centers, it's partnered with Project Success to bring Minneapolis high school students to Washington, D.C. to tour the African American History Museum. I mean, there have been a number of initiatives that this social justice committee has undertaken. And as we mentioned, it's been going on for three years now, not just after George Floyd's death. But here's my question. As we begin to look forward to this season, Andre, do you think, are we expecting every player and even coaches to kneel during the national anthem? Is it, is it going to be more surprising now to see someone stand during the anthem than kneel? And how is it to change your approach for what you'll do, whatever you'll do this upcoming season? Well, you know, Adam, I, you know, I think that's up to, each individual team and, you know, obviously each individual pl- player, um, you know, of, of, of how, how that's going to play out. You know, I, I just know that on our team uh, that we have a strong locker room. We have a committee group that's very strong and they will get together as a group 
and they'll talk about it. They'll talk it out. You know, they'll talk it out. And whether that's them deciding that, you know, every man can do what they want to do or whether that's deciding that, you know, they're going to do something together, whatever the case that the case may be. Uh, I feel strongly enough that I, I trust our players uh, that they'll, they'll make the best decision that's the best for each individual player and the best thing for our team and our organization. And, um, I, and I think that's the thing that's, that's been great for us is that, you know, we were ahead of the game as far as putting this committee group together. And, and it's a strong group. And, and you take that with having a strong locker room that's very close. You know, I, I think they'll get together and 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 they'll make the right decisions, whatever case that whatever case that might be. What about you personally? It, it's it's funny, Adam, uh, that you bring that up. You know, back back when the whole thing happened with Kaepernick, I, I I told the guys two stories. I told them that two things that have happened to me uh, in my life. You know, one like I told you before. Uh, you know, I I grew up where the Panthers were, and and, and there was a lot of things going on during that time that 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 they wanted black people to do. And what had happened was, is that you found out that you shouldn't feel the pressure that you have to do that, to be a part of the group. You need to do what you feel is best for you to show your support, whatever the case that may be. And that's the most important thing. We all don't have to do the same thing to show that you're supportive. Now, if that's what you want to do, that's fine and dandy. But you shouldn't feel like you have to do one certain thing in order to show that you have support. I conveyed that message to the group, and I gave them an example. When I was at Washington State, um, you know, Pullman, Washington is a small town, and it's 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 you know it's uh, you know five miles from Moscow, Idaho, and the drinking age at Moscow, Idaho at that time was 18. And in the state of Washington, it was 21. So obviously, a lot of the students would drive across the border, you know, have a good time in Idaho, and then come back to uh, to Pullman. And it was a, uh, a high volume of our black players being the ones that were being pulled over all the time. I had an old Mercedes, beat-up Mercedes that I used to drive. And, and I used to get followed home. I got pulled over several times for no reason. And I could have done one of two things. I could have got angry and you know made a big deal, went to the media, whatever. I could have done all those things. But what I did is I walked in the head coach's office and I said, hey, I want you to make me the liaison to the police department. And he looked at me. He goes, well, I said, yeah, I want you to make me the liaison to the police department. And the reason why is because I want them to see my face, first of all. Okay. And then secondly, I want to try to implement programs that would get them more comfortable with our players. And he did. He made me the, the liaison to the police department. And so because I would go there all the time and I would sit down with the, with the chief and sit down with, with uh, other officers, I was able to implement a ride-along program. We, we had a program where, where several of our, of our players would go and spend the day uh, at the police station we had barbecues. We had all kinds of things that we did through that two-year period that I was there. And what happened was, is, is originally they had saw all the players that we were bringing in. They thought they were gangbangers coming from, from uh, Los Angeles. So they were afraid of our guys. 
when they got a chance to be around them and see that that wasn't true and that they were good people and, and just the normal, regular college students that were good guys, that whole thing changed. That whole relationship changed. So you can deal with things two different ways. And so that's the reason why I wanted to express those to the players is that, you know, there's, we all want to have change. And that doesn't mean that there's only one right way to get it done. And so um, I think those two experiences, me relaying those two experiences to our, to our players, really helped opened up their eyes on that, hey, we can spend time to try to figure out different ways to get this done. And that's the way they've been. That's quite a story there and quite a life you've lived. And now at the age of 60, being involved the way you are there, Andre, what gives you hope now? Uh, I, I have a lot of hope now because I think this one's, like I said earlier, I think this one's different. It, it's, you know, like I said, you see a wide variety of people that are out there that are that are playing a part and and having their voices being heard. I think, you know, you, you have you have people before that that uh, that would not have listened to the reason why things were happening that are now listening. And opening their eyes and seeing for the first time uh, that all these things that have been said for for forever are for real, and so that's why I have hope that this one is different. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, it'll stay on that path. You know, people will will keep their passion about this, and 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 it'll continue to grow, and we'll start to see change happen. Obviously, it's not going to happen overnight, but. Uh, uh, hopefully, everybody can keep this uh, this hunger and this quest that they have to see change. Hey, Andre, I want to thank you very much for the time. But more important, I want to thank you for the example that you set throughout the your entire career and during your time in Minnesota. What you've done has been invaluable, and it continues to be invaluable. Keep doing all those great things that you do, and keep showing or keep being an example uh, for the young men that you are. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Adam. Anytime. I appreciate you, you visiting with me. And there is the great and thoughtful Andre Patterson. Amazing that he's never gotten the opportunity to be a head coach. When you listen to somebody like that talk and think about the way that he relates to his players and what he means to that organization, hard to imagine that nobody's ever given Andre Patterson a chance to be a head coach of an NFL football team. We'll see if he perhaps gets a chance after this season in the next round of head coaching interviews when somebody like Andre Patterson, I would think, would deserve more attention and interviews than he's gotten in the past. Now, before we go, I also should mention that last week, Anthony Fauci came out and said that the NFL season could be in jeopardy, that the league could have to play in a bubble. And I think we've seen more and more cases of COVID pop up, and we're going to see more and more as we get closer to camp. And there are certain regions of the country spiking in numbers. But I want to say there's one person I know very connected to the NFL, very knowledgeable. And on Thursday night at 8.56 Eastern, as there were some questions and concerns about this, he texted me, and I'm going to read you, the NFL is going to play, Adam. I'm very certain of it. Have faith in the league. The process and testing and protocols protocols are exceptional. You should see and hear how much is being done. Daily saliva tests and PCR tests every three days, sanitizing everything, including the balls. You can't believe all that's being done and prepared. 
And so it's good to get a message like that from somebody in the know who is convinced that there will be football because I think there are more and more people who have questions about whether the league will be able to pull it off. And I think that the one thing we can say is that the league is determined to get this season in. I think that's the thing that football fans can count on. I know it's different than free agency and the draft, which I thought were going to be tough to pull off, but the league did it, did both, did them well. And it's going to be different with contact and a contact sport where people are supposed to be socially distancing. But again, one text from one person very much in the know saying that there will be football this season. And all I can say is I hope he's right. Thank you to Omar Jimenez, the CNN reporter and correspondent who joined us this week. Thank you to the Vikings co-defensive coordinator and defensive line coach, Andre Patterson. Thank you to my great producer, Christina Buswell putting this all together. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week when we'll be back with more guests, more insight, more perspective, and more hope, what we hope is the upcoming football season. Until then, have a great week, everybody. Be well and stay safe.